Hello, thank you for tuning in to Squabbles of the Soil, the podcast produced by students of MTSU's Agricultural Debate and Discussion course. Let's dig into some of the most controversial topics in ag today. None of these views reflect Middle Tennessee State University's beliefs as a whole. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase to kill two birds with one stone, but what if I told you that could get you a felony? Today we will be discussing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, one of the oldest conservation laws in the United States. Some say that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is a crucial conservation law that has saved species from the brink of extinction and should not be changed, while others say it essentially handcuffs citizens from protecting their health and severely restricts what they can do to protect their property and livestock from protected species. With that being said, let's dig in with our first guest, Dick Preston, the co-chair of the Tennessee Ornithological Society. So to start, would you mind explaining what exactly is the Tennessee Ornithological Society? It's uh, founded in 1915. It's the oldest conservation environmental organization in Tennessee. I've been a two-time past president. Currently, I'm co-chair of our conservation policy committee. And I've been birding uh, since I was a little kid, so that's more than 65 years. And would you mind explaining what exactly the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is? Sure. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act has its genesis at the turn of the last century. Uh, Many of your listeners probably know National Audubon also has its roots going back that far. The women's millinery trade had a really huge demand for feathers. And obviously, birds provide feathers. So mm-hmm. there was wholesale slaughter of herons and egrets and other species to provide the feathers to make women's hats and uh, boas and all sorts of other fashionable items. Well, the slaughter was getting so big that people finally became concerned enough that in 1916, the U.S. and Canada entered into a international treaty to protect migratory birds. And the big emphasis was to prevent that kind of slaughter uh, of of water birds in particular. So it it started as an international treaty between the U.S. and Canada. It was officially ratified as an act in 1918. And it was about 20 years later, Mexico, we entered into an agreement with them. And that was followed much later by Japan and lastly by the Soviet Union, now Russia, 1976. So four international treaties to protect migratory birds have sort of morphed into one overarching act called the Migratory Bird Protection and Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And the basic intent, as stated, it's to ensure the sustainability of populations of all the protected migratory bird species. And there are currently almost 1,100 species on that protected list, and approximately 122 species that occur within the U.S. but are not protected. And how do they determine which birds get to be protected? So basically, protected species have to be migratory. They have to occur within the U.S. or its territories by a natural biological or ecological process. So it can't be an introduced species uh, again, many of your listeners probably know rock pigeons, uh, the common feral pigeon, is an introduced species. It's an exotic. It's not native. It's not protected. Same thing with uh, European starlings or house sparrows. 
and a number of other species, like the 122 currently. All of these can be found online. Uh, the list of protected species is published, uh, but through the Department of the Interior, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service maintains that list, and it's downloadable uh, to public access. The act itself prohibits the take, and take is described as the killing, capturing, selling, trading, or transporting uh, migratory birds, protected birds. And that includes things like the nests and eggs, even feathers. Uh, it, it's technically it, illegal to collect feathers. Uh, not likely to run into the feather police since most kids at one point or another have collected an old robin's nest or picked up feathers. Uh, nobody's going to come after you for that. If you're caught trafficking in feathers or bird parts, uh, that's a violation. And what is the punishment for the more severe violations like trafficking? Penalties can be as much as $50,000 and two years in prison. And of course, that's a rarity. Uh, and it really has to be with sort of commercial smugglers, that sort of thing. It's You're not going to catch the neighborhood kid who comes home with a, with a bunch of feathers that they found. Yeah, so when I was researching, I saw that even for the less severe violations, it's still a misdemeanor punishable by a fine of up to $15,000 and up to six months in prison. Do you think this is fair? Do you think it should be more severe, less severe, or do you think that's about where it should be? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing. Things that are truly accidental, and, and you'll see this, most sportsmen, hunters, I'm not a hunter. I don't advocate for it, but I'm not against it either. Uh, so most hunters, sportsmen, uh, they'll obey the laws. There are seasons, there are bag limits, uh, and the vast majority of them, really honest, they're, they're very conscientious. But occasionally you get the, the yahoos, don't care about the law, and they will do what they call poaching. They'll hunt out of season, they'll exceed bag limits, uh, some of them just do it out of meanness. Uh, so those people, I'd like to see more stringent penalties, uh, especially for things like Hooping cranes. Hooping cranes are a extremely rare species. We brought them back basically from the, the edge of extinction. They can be confused when young with sandhill cranes. Sandhill cranes are a legally huntable bird. Hooping cranes are not. Uh, and there have been intentional shootings of hooping cranes. Uh, the U.S. government, that is taxpayers, have spent enormous amounts of money to bring that bird back. And killing one really is a big deal. A huge amount of money per bird has been spent. And letting people like that off with a slap on the wrist, that that gets my goat. An accidental occurrence, yeah, again, there's a little bit of common sense. Uh, but it's the egregious ones. It's it's the ones who, who intentionally, knowingly hunt out of season, who intentionally, knowingly exceed bag limits, just go out to shoot and kill as many things as they can. When they catch those guys, the penalties are often not severe enough. Confiscating guns, confiscating vehicles, fines, uh, losing hunting licenses. Uh, yeah, those things should be piled on to the guys who, who just intentionally, knowingly violate those provisions. And I wanted to ask you, I know you mentioned the cranes earlier, but about how big of an impact does this 
act have on conservation and protecting species from extinction? It's actually probably the single single greatest environmental conservation act that we managed to put together. Uh, it has done, if, again, if you go back to the turn of the previous century, there were an awful lot of species that were on the brink. And many of them have been, at least so far, been saved. So the act has had a, a pretty big impact. It provides a lot of funding. Uh, it's been amended many times over the years. Uh, it's probably still underfunded, in my opinion. Uh, but nonetheless, there is a significant amount of money and a significant amount of effort put behind enforcing the act. And it has had a, a significant positive impact. There's, there's no question about that. Unfortunately, birds, many of your listeners will probably understand or know, there are 10,824 species currently that we, we identify as species. And more than half of those are what we call on the edge. Their populations are in serious decline. Uh, now, of course, this is worldwide. Uh, and even in the U.S., there are um, somewhere around two, 300 species that are in that, that precarious zone where they are sort of on the edge. They are reaching the tipping point. Uh, they're holding on for now, but um, serious declines are, are looking us in the face. I know some people struggle with having birds in their yards. It can create a lot of bird droppings, a lot of damage to their house. Sometimes they're th a threat to their livestock, to their pets. What is the process for people to take care of something like that? Permits can be provided, and permits are certainly routinely necessary for any number of reasons. It is technically illegal to handle, maintain, transport wild birds, native birds. So people that are engaged in rehabilitation have to have special permits from both federal and state level. Uh, people that are bird banders for science and education, they have to have special permits. Uh, native tribes, uh, in order to use eagle feathers and eagle parts and ceremonial rites, uh, they have to have permits. Hunting, hunting is a huge carve out. Uh, there are approximately 170 game species in the U.S. 60 of those are routinely hunted every year, require special permissions uh, for that. Educational purposes, uh, colleges, universities for their research, their collections have to have permits. And then there's a nuisance permit. And as you describe, oh, things like people that operate catfish farms have a great deal of predation by cormorants, herons, egrets. Uh, they occasionally will get permits, go through the permitting process uh, to remove a small portion of those birds. Uh, farmers, uh, there are limited cases, but nonetheless, there are cases where uh, vultures may become a problem. Uh, so a, a permit can be issued to allow them to take or remove uh, the so-called offending vultures. Um, building contractors, uh, where they need to remove trees, uh, nesting species, uh, threatened or endangered species, 
have to be considered. Permits are often required for that. So there are provisions under the law, there are carve-outs for those types of, of scenarios, even individuals. Um, if, if they can show that there's a significant damage uh, to property, uh, but most of these permits are around agriculture, uh, aquaculture, uh, commercial type operations. Uh, but there are provisions if a homeowner can, can document significant damage, permits can be issued to remove those species. And I'm actually reading up on the permit process here, and it looks like the application is pretty lengthy. Some of the things it requires is a description of the species, the location, previous attempts to deter the animal. It costs $50, and it can take up to 60 days before even receiving it. And if you do receive it, it only lasts a year. Do you think this process should be eased up on a little bit, or do you think these obstacles are necessary in terms of conservation? Yeah, it's a tough call. From my perspective, as a bird watcher, as a as a conservationist, environmentalist, to me, <laughs> excuse me, to me, the process is uh, is just fine. It might even be a, made a little more difficult. If you're on the other end of that, however, and this is again where you have to have a little common sense. There's got to be a little give and take. Uh, nobody gets to win 100% of their their point of view. It's probably about right. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a farmer who's seeing hordes of birds devour acres of his of his crop that year, that's a big financial hit. A uh, catfish farmer who just watched cormorants or egrets consume a few thousand dollars worth of fingerlings, uh, that could be a big hit. Uh, so you have to at least consider the other guy's point of view and what they're dealing with, what they have to go through. So yes, it is a lengthy process, but that's that's really necessary so we don't just somebody just can't walk in and say i need a permit to go shoot uh, 25 cormorants well you gotta 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 put a little bit of background on that you gotta put a little documentation into that you've got to really show cause and effect before you can issue a permit to do that once you kill something it's gone it's it's over so before you take that step are there other mitigations that can be done are there other things you can do to avoid that, uh, and oftentimes there are, uh, where you don't have to resort to the actual killing of birds or animals. Uh, similar acts protect uh, other species, not just birds. So yeah, you you have to balance it. You can't just issue a permit because somebody walks in and says, I need one. And you don't want to make it so cumbersome that by the time they get the permit, the damage has been done, and it's too late. So yeah, it's a balancing act. Mm-hmm. The system is pretty good at it. Uh, again, if you you ask that poor farmer or catfish aquaculturist, uh, they might have a different point of view. But from my perspective, uh, I think the system is is pretty good. It works pretty well. And that leads me to my last question, which is what revisions, if any, do you think should be made to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act? Uh, Well, the act itself is amended uh, fairly often. Uh, It's it's surprising the number of amendments uh, without getting political. um, Congressmen and women like to be seen doing something, uh, so they, they don't like to not be busy. So there are 
a never-ending series of amendments proposed. Most of them never make it uh, because they're too narrow in their focus, uh, very, very limited in their focus, not national, but local. So they don't make it. Uh, the act itself, as it stands, I think is pretty darn good. Um, it's, it's, it's always a tough thing when you've got 435 members of Congress and you've got 330 million constituents out there trying to please everybody. That's a really tough thing to do. So from my perspective, I think the act is in pretty good shape. Uh, and I, again, not to get political, I think the previous administration was way too lax. Uh, the current administration is back, I think, on a, on a better track overall as far as conservation goes. So I'd rather err on the side of caution. Caution is birds are in trouble. Uh, they're in trouble worldwide. They're in trouble in the U.S. Populations, by and large, are declining. Far more of the species populations are in decline than are stable or increasing. And that's a real concern. So I think the act needs to be strong. The regulatory uh, rules and regulations need to be tough. And by and large, they are. Fish and Wildlife Service, I think, does a a pretty darn good job of, of enforcement. So from my perspective, I think the act is in good shape the way it is. I'm always suspicious when amendments are proposed because almost all amendments that are proposed weaken the act. They don't strengthen it, uh, which is which is why uh, as an organization and as an individual, we tend to oppose most of the amendments that come up. So. I guess the short answer is I'm pretty pleased overall. It's a good act. It's a strong act if it's enforced. And of course, that's the key. The rules and regulations are there, uh, but the short thrift when it comes to funding is on the law enforcement portion. Um, really could use more uh, law enforcement officers attached to Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, they are undermanned and underfunded, uh, that would be a big help. Uh, that's, that's one of the things I think where I would say more money for more positions for the, the law enforcement officers, those wildlife law enforcement officers. But other than that, I think it's pretty good. I'd like to give a huge thanks to our first guest, Dick Preston. Next up, we will be talking with Justin Johnson. So to start, would you mind explaining for us your background in wildlife and pest control? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I am a certified for, an, oh, it's, a, it's a pretty lengthy title, but essentially I'm certified for general household pest and structural pest control in regards to health. Um, and I'm also uh, currently being certified for wildlife control uh, as a whole. And I, uh, I'm licensed for general rodents and pest control here in the state of Tennessee. So essentially, if it, if it poses any kind of risk to your health or your property, I'm the guy to call. And what kind of health risks do birds pose to humans? In general, um, they do. There's two different aspects to having a bird problem around your home. One, uh, 
birds have a tendency to carry a lot of uh, ectoparasites, things like mites, ticks, uh, on occasion fleas, not very often, but it does happen. So those are all types of insects that can infest your home and then, of course, cause, can cause electric reactions and are also insects that bite. Um, that's one of the most important concerns. But secondly is the if you've got a pretty hefty population of birds around the home, the second concern is all the feces. Um, birds have a pretty fast metabolism. So when they eat food, they don't necessarily have the opportunity to process that food entirely. So whatever gets passed through their system um, has the opportunity to grow bacteria, funguses, and thus on top of that, whatever bacteria they carry themselves. Um, most commonly noted, uh, of course, the avian flu, the bird flu. Uh, secondly, uh, histoplasmosis is another problem. Um, and that's not just around your home, too. There are a lot of farmers in the area that combat combat that issue because um, of course not only if you, if you as a person come in contact with their feces you're exposed for that but you have to consider too the livestock that may consume that feces and therefore you know the chain reaction happens you, know, you get beef that's um, inundated with histoplasmosis bacteria and you consume that beef if you don't cook it properly and now you're contaminated or now you're sick from, from the disease itself as well um, another question I had was, do you see a lot of property damage caused by birds? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So not only does the feces carry, you know, uh, pathogens and whatnot, it's very acidic. So in an instance, uh, I'm sure you can find some reports, uh, especially regarding uh, from the Tennessee Department of Transportation, where birds nest underneath bridges. Any of those steel structures in, uh, that have a buildup of bird feces have a tendency to corrode much faster than they typically would because of the acid in the bird feces. So, you know, not only does it damage our infrastructure, but you have to consider what that would do to your home as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as far as damage to the paint, that the excess acid on the side of your home, let's say hypothetically a, a barn swallow built a, a mud nest on the side of your house. The mud's one thing, but, you know, there, there is a period of time where there's, you know, four to six little birds in that nest that are doing their business for up to a month. Um, so you, you, you'll, you will get a buildup of that feces, and, you know, of course, it, it, it can affect your gutter system, water drainage, things of that nature. So essentially, you know, because of all the hoops and, and the red tape that you have to go through for, uh, lack of a better expression, you know, lethal, lethal measures to control the birds. That's why this industry that I work in exists. It's a lot easier to either, one, exclude the birds from the situation, or two, deter them from the situation as, it, as opposed to correcting the problem. It's always cheaper to take a preemptive strike than it is to take a corrective strike. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we want nature to do what nature does. We, we don't want to, you know, uh, the Migratory Bird Act was created for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to kill anything that doesn't need to be killed. We don't want to affect any populations that don't need to be affected. So in the long run, if, if you know that a particular site has an issue from year to year, um, once the birds migrate and move on, carry on with their life cycle, once they clear out, the best thing to do is start making decisions immediately on how to prevent it from occurring or at least mitigating it as much as possible. You know, the, the way that I look at it is these birds are just doing what they're programmed to do biologically. 
of the day, our home is in their way. However, our homes and our structures and our commercial sites are our biggest investments. So we've got to do what we can to try and protect them as much as possible. I mean, I understand that. And I, I, you know, I, I foot that bill myself. But in an instance where, hypothetically, you mentioned something about a hawk earlier, um, you know, if the average Joe's got a chicken coop with 30 chickens in it and a hawk is killing his chickens, does that justify a lethal measure against the hawk? Mm, legally, no. I mean, on a personal level, I'm sure you're pretty upset about it, you know, as a chicken owner. But he's doing what he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to. He's a predatory animal. Um, he's a raptor. That's that's what he's supposed to do to survive. Um, mm-hmm. So. And what kind of non-lethal measures can you take against these birds? There are, so on the forefront of the market, what tends to be the most popular right now are there are chemical applications that are safe for both the environment and people and other wildlife. Um, Bird Be Gone is a pretty prominent company right now, and they produce a chemical that, uh, once applied to the area where birds tend to congregate, it essentially acts kind of like a gas in the sense that it makes, it makes the birds uncomfortable physically. It doesn't harm them in any way. It, uh, kind of burns their, their nasal passages in their eyes. And that, that works as a pretty good deterrent. Um, you can also put in place, uh, you know, visual deterrents. Um, you know, the most classic example that I can think of for that would be somebody who sets uh, posts in their garden and ties a silver poppy into it to let the, the wind blow it around. You know, a silver poppy hand flashes and reflects light and it scares the birds away. Uh, and then second, or finally, too, there are other opportunities that you can take that, because these are migratory board birds and we're trying to let nature do what nature does, you can try to provide conducive situations around the area that, of concern that promote uh, predatory birds of, your, of the bird of concern to be congregate around that area as well. That way you can kind of let nature do its best. Um, let nature solve the problem for you. You know, if you've got a lot of sparrows around the house, it may be wise to try and invite maybe a few grackles around. And grackles are a predatory bird. They're omnivorous and they'll, they'll actually target house sparrows. Um, if you've got a lot of pigeons hanging around, maybe try to set up something to kind of invite an owl to hang around. Pigeons are, are scared to death of owls. There, there, there are numerous approaches you can take. And do you think there should be fewer restrictions to obtaining depredation licenses such as these? Or do you think that the requirements are about where they should be? Um, personally, I feel like they were, in, in terms of con- conservation, yeah, they're right where they should be. Um, you know, I, I understand the premise behind that the Migratory Bird Act was on, on the, the premise of conservation. And actually, as it turns out, we're starting to reach, we've already reached quite a bit of the benefits of the, the act itself. Now we're starting to see uh, heavier populations than were anticipated or were ever even a place to begin with. Uh, I can tell you that the Canadian geese were one of the main species in which the act was enacted for. And now they're becoming a nuisance uh, species themselves. They're considered a pest now. So do you think there should be any amendments made to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act? Yeah, yeah. Um, for some species, yes. I, I don't think it would be a bad idea to alter some of the expectations for, like, for, for instance, grackles. Grackles migrate by the hundreds of thousands. Um, have you lived here in Tennessee very long? Um, 
I've lived here since I was about 10 years old. Okay. So during the wintertime, have you ever seen the big flocks of blackbirds that show up and they make all kinds of noise around your house and you can clap your hands and they'll all scatter and fly yeah, away? Yeah, I have. Those, those are grackles. For those of you who aren't aware, this is what a grackle sounds like. And this is what a hundred grackles sound like. Anyways, back to our guest. And they are considered a migratory bird. However, they don't necessarily completely leave Tennessee altogether. And grackles, because they're in such massive numbers and fly around in such massive flocks, there are a lot of, in, in regards to agriculture, there are a lot of ways that grackles affect us that really the best approach would be uh, a lethal approach um, just because they're such in such great numbers. Um, I've, I've seen and heard of entire crops of corn and soybean be completely eradicated in, in early spring because of grackles. You know, those, those massive flocks show up and they'll pull the seedlings up out of the ground. And, you know, depending on the size of the farm and what the crop is, I mean, that that's tens of thousands of dollars to a farmer. And unfortunately, insurance doesn't cover that, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, my last question is when I was doing some research, I was looking up the punishments for violations of the act and I saw that just any regular violation is a misdemeanor and it's a fine up to $15,000 and six months in yep. prison. Um, and uh -huh. if you're trafficking them or taking them and wanting to sell them, it's, um, up to 2000, but you can get in prison for two years. What do you think about these, um, punishments? Do you think the sentencing and the fines are fair or do you think they're too severe? You know, um, it's all a matter of perspective, I suppose. You know, if, if in an instance where you're trafficking birds for a profit, you know, no, that's wrong. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that in, by any means. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing it to try and protect your livestock or protect your property uh, or even to the extent to where you know, there aren't very many birds that are considered uh, game animals that are in a, protected by the Migratory Bird Act, aside from maybe crows. But, uh, you know, I think that instances like that should be viewed on a circumstantial situation. It all depends on what's going on and why it was going on. You know, if, if Joe Blow is out killing crows to try and put food on the table for his kids, then, okay, I get it. Uh, it is what it is. Did he break the law? Absolutely. Do we need to, you know, Hanging out to dry because of it? Probably not. So, you know, um, to say whether I feel like it's fair or not, I could, I, I stand on the, I stand on the fence on that one. I'm not sure. With that being said, it looks like we are just about out of time. I would like again to thank our speakers, Dick Preston and Justin Johnson, for helping out with this episode. If you are interested in learning more about birds and conservation, I highly recommend you check out the Audubon Society at www.audubon.org. Thank you for listening to another episode of Squabbles of the Soil. Join us again to explore more controversial topics in agriculture. When you think your side is the only side, keep digging.